This morning we are finishing up a five-week series in one of my favorite books in all the Bible, a book called Job. If you're not familiar with the Bible, this book can be found in what's called the Old Testament. It's the first and longest section of the Bible, two sections. Uh, if you turn about halfway into the Bible that is provided for you here at the center of each aisle, if you want to grab one, uh, if you turn about halfway in and then go left a little ways, you should find yourself to Job. Job is the Bible's lengthiest, most detailed grappling with a problem that's known to every believer in the God of the Bible from the beginning until now. It is the Bible's longest, most detailed wrestling with a problem that every believer in this God of the Bible has, has had, to, had to wrestle with on their own, one way or another, in which every believer in this room has had to grapple with. And if not fully yet, it's a problem that every believer will have to grapple with fully. The older they get, the more their friends die, the closer they get to their own death, the more that disease threatens their body. Every one of us has to confront the problem that Job confronted. It's been called the problem of evil. The problem of evil. It's not just a problem that the new atheist writers like Christopher Hitchens aim at the faith of Christians like an, like an arrow from a bow or, or in their own minds like some sort of rocket-propelled grenade. It, it's not just a problem that those who don't believe in God shoot at those who do believe in God. It isn't just a problem that gets discovered by the newly enlightened college sophomore who thinks now they can see through the faith of their parents, seeing things their parents had never recognized. It isn't that kind of problem. It's a problem that every believer knows firsthand. And every believer will know with greater and greater intimacy the longer that they live. Every believer, if you want to know what Christians believe, every believer believes that God is good, that God is loving, that God is just. That's what they believe about the character of God. And believers in the God of the Bible believe that God is also sovereign, powerful. That He made everything. That He rules over what He made. And everyone with eyes to see, every believer, also knows that there is great evil in the world. Evil that God hates. Evil that hurts those that God loves. So every believer has to ask, why? Why? Job's questions about why are, are our questions. But by the time Job gets to the end of his wrestling, his questions had morphed into only slightly veiled accusations against God. From questions about what God is up to, to borderline accusations against God for mishandling His government over the world. And in chapter 38 of Job, what we started considering last night, or last week rather, God finally speaks. 
For 37 chapters, Job is wrestling with the loss of everything that he loved, with friends who are speaking in, trying to explain it to him. And Job wants an audience with God. And in chapter 38, God shows up. God speaks. We started looking at, we started looking at God's words to Job by considering his first speech, which, which was focused on the limits of Job's knowledge. God's first response was, you don't get to be this outraged when you don't see everything that's happening. You're assuming in your accusations against me that I can't be working something good for you, even in the midst of your sorrow. You're assuming that because you can't see what's going on, there is nothing going on behind the scenes. You should never assume that. That was his first response, the first speech. Today we come to the second speech, chapters 40 to 42. And this speech focuses on the limits of Job's power. So the first one was on the limits of Job's knowledge. You don't see everything that is, so you don't get to judge God. This one focuses on his, the limits of his power. You can't control the things that are affecting you, so you better trust me with those things. But the root to this basic point, that God's power is greater than Job's power, the root to that point is just as unexpected as the root of the first speech. At the heart of what God says to Job, to convince him that he should trust him, even in his pain, at the heart of what he says to Job are two enormous beasts. God's speech that closes his case to Job, that closes his words on the problem of evil, is to describe a beast that he calls Behemoth and a beast that he calls Leviathan and then to end it at that. Case closed. So the job that we have, the job that all interpreters of Job have always had, is to figure out how what God says actually addresses what Job needs. We don't think God just throws his words around willy-nilly. He chooses what his children need to hear. So what did Job need to hear these beasts? Why, what did Job need to hear in the description of these beasts? That's what we really want to consider. We've got to start by looking at the beasts themselves. So here's, here's what I want to do. Here's the plan for today. Pretty simple. We're going to look at two beasts, two bizarre monsters, and then we're going to look at two hopeful implications. Two bizarre monsters followed by two hopeful implications. I want to start by reading the setup for his description of these two crazy animals. And I'm going to ask you to stand with me as I do that. I'm going to start reading in Job 40, verse 6. This is where the Lord goes into his second speech. I'm going to read verses 6 to 14 before we get into the, to the portrait of these beasts. This is the word of the Lord. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like His? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and abase Him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring them low and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then will I also acknowledge to you 
that your own right hand can save you. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. What we just read sets up Job's picture of two bizarre monsters. What we've just read is God's challenge to Job. Can you put the world to rights? Can you make sure the wicked get what's coming to them? Do you have the power to crush those who oppress others? As soon as you have that power, check back in with me and I'll acknowledge that you're good on your own. Then he launches in to his picture of behemoth and Leviathan. I want to walk through just the images that he uses to draw these animals for us, these characters. And then we'll we'll come back to what we should learn from these images. What is it that these images are pointing us to that's helpful to Job and to us? Let's start with behemoth. He comes out in verse 15 of Job chapter 40. Behemoth is just a word for a large beast. It's It's built on the word for just a common farm animal. This one's just really big and unruly. We use it still today, don't we? Kind of like an adjective more often than not. Like I had a behemoth hamburger last night. And I did. I'm telling you, that thick. It was amazing. This is where it comes from. If you're wondering where that word comes from, maybe you even used it and didn't know what it was. This is where it comes from, from this portrait of this animal. So we got this huge beast. What's he like? Look, pick up at verse 15. Behold behemoth, the Lord says to Job, which I made. As I made you. He eats grass like an ox. Behold his strength and his loins. And his power and the muscles of his belly. He makes his tail stiff like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze. His limbs like bars of iron. It's a massive beast. One might even say an immovable beast. Verses 23 to 24 show him that, show that he's even unafraid of powerful water. We talked before about, uh, last week, we talked about so many of the images in, uh, for God's power and his vastness are water images. Because in the ancient world, water was seen as this powerful force of chaos. Something that, was, that, that, that no one on earth could control. But here's this behemoth sitting in water. Pick it up in verse 23. The ri- if the river is turbulent, if the water has turned on us, He's not frightened. He's confident, though Jordan rushes against his mouth. He can stand there in the river, rushing at him, and basically just drink it all. Phased by nothing. And because this beast is this great, can anyone take him by his eyes? Do you dare come for him when he can see you? Does anyone have the strength to pierce his nose with a snare? first verse of chapter 41 switches gears from behemoth told a pretty short set of verses to the leviathan which is the entire chapter job 41 much greater detail much more important to job this is what he wants this is what god wants job to see and hear leviathan is a water dweller Behemoth was mostly on land, could sometimes hang out in the water, wasn't afraid of the water, but was mostly roaming the mountains, getting his food, eating grass. Leviathan dwells in the water, not just the waters of the river or the swamp, but even the ocean. God says to Job, can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook? God's words here are almost playful. They're sarcastic, 
but they're warmly so. The best, the best description of the, way, of the way these next few verses read that I saw is that God is, God is checking Job. He's pushing back against Job, but not the way that a judge comes down on one who's guilty, but in the way that a father might, might playfully bring around an unruly son. It's loving, there's, it's loving but he's got to be put in his place. Read, listen to these verses. They're, they're sarcastic, almost playful, but dark at the same time. Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook? Or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many pleas to you? Will he speak to you soft words? Will he make a covenant with you to take him for your servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird? Think of a parrot on the shoulder of a pirate. Or will you put him on a leash for your girls? Will you make him a pet and walk him around the neighborhood? Will traders bargain over him? Will they divide him up among the merchants? The obvious answer to all of these questions is no, no, no. And builds to verse 8. Lay your hands on him. You come for him. You'll remember the battle. You will not do it again. He's pretty much invincible before human power. That's the point about this Leviathan. Whatever he is, the point is he is invincible before human power. That point comes out even more strongly in some of the next details that he gives us. He's got this built-in body armor that nothing you throw against him is going to be able to penetrate. Look at verses 15 to 17. His back, still talking about Leviathan, whatever this creature is, his back is made of rows of shields shut up closely as with a seal. There's no place that you can get anything into him. One is so near to another that no air can come between them. They're joined to one another. They clasp each other and cannot be separated. With armor like this, nothing gets to him. Skip down to verse 26. Though the sword reaches him, it doesn't avail. It just bounces right off. Nor the spear, the dart, or the javelin. He counts iron as straw. He just snaps it. And bronze as rotten wood. The arrow cannot make him flee. For him, sling stones are turned to stubble. Clubs are counted as stubble. He laughs at the rattle of javelins. His underparts are like sharp potsherds. He spreads himself like a threshing sledge on the mire. He makes the deep boil like a pot. He makes the sea like a pot of ointment. Behind him, he leaves a shining wake. One would think the deep to be white-haired with the with the froth, the bubbles that kick up as he moves through it. On earth there is not his like. A creature without fear. He sees everything that is high. He is king over the sons of pride. That's Leviathan. Who in the world are these creatures? Based on everything I read, there's two main options for explaining who these creatures are. We have to explain who they are to really understand why God would go there. That's the, that was the last thing God said, by the way. To all of Job's wrangling, all of the mysteriousness of his experience, the profundity of his questions, the back and the forth between he and his friends for all this pleading with God for an audience, the last word that God says to him is a word about some sort of sea monster. Who are they? Two main options that I've seen. 
One is a naturalistic reading of them. They're actually a couple of other animals, just like the animals that were in God's first speech. If you weren't here last week, we talked about Job 38 and 39. It catalogs, especially chapter 39, all of these animals that are amazing and weird and inexplicable by human minds and that don't rely on humans for anything. They're just out there doing their own thing. Telling Job, you don't even know why they're there or how they get what they need to survive, so who are you to claim that you see everything that is? Could be that these two animals are just another, set, another couple in the set that God forgot to throw into speech number one. Now he's cleaning it up, giving him a couple of other ones. If that's what they are, most people have argued recently, that is, that they're a hippo, behemoth, just sound kind of hippo-like with those huge, those huge uh, limbs that are like right, what was what was the uh, the image? His his bones as tubes of bronze and his limbs like bars of iron. I don't know. I could see it. Maybe it's a hippo. The uh, the best explanation for the leviathan that I've seen is that it's a crocodile, right? Because you got the scales that are also tight on the back of their on the back of their their skin, and that you can't get to them. Uh, we used to like this show called, uh, uh, oh, what was it called? Now I'm forgetting on what it was called. It's this show about these guys in Louisiana who are always hunting crocodiles. Alligator something. I don't know. Alligator hunters. I don't know what it was. So you guys can look it up. Just Google it. It's awesome. It's so real and authentic that they have to add subtitles to the English earlier in Job. Matches up really well with a Canaanite god called Mot, the god of death. Often Israel would take the gods of their neighbors and put them to use in their own stories or in their own poetic imagery to show gods being more powerful than all the things that their neighbors feared or trusted. That God, is, that God takes place second fiddle to no one else's gods. Not endorsing the reality of these gods, but taking the things that they represent, like in this case, death itself, and saying, our God rules it. He made it. He's not threatened by it. It's a convincing reason to take the most convincing part is the way that Leviathan comes up in other places in the Old Testament. This will be a third, a third reason. Leviathan comes up in several other places in the Old Testament. And in, in all of them, as clear, maybe even clearer than in Job, than just an animal, even a powerful animal. So, for example, I won't take time to read these. You could do that on your own if you want to do some interesting cross-reference here. I'll just mention them. For, for example, here's, here's a couple of them. Isaiah chapter twenty or chapter twenty-seven verse one refers to Le- that God conquers, that He crushes. In Psalm chapter seventy-four, verses twelve to seventeen, the Exodus event we mentioned earlier in our service today, the, the event that is part of the foundation of Israel's not God delivering them from Egypt. In Psalm seventy-four, a hymn. Se- Leviathan comes up there. The Exodus 74 as God. That's what happened when Israel was set free from Egypt. And then in Psalm 104, verse 26, God is described as having created the sea as the place for Leviathan. Remember what the sea represents in the ancient world a place of chaos and evil turbulence and disorder. God put there and turned him loose. Then of course in Revelation 
where John, the apostle, is looking ahead to God's final victory over everything that threatens God's people, doesn't use the word But what is the image for evil that he portrays in that book as being crushed by Christ in all of his glory? It's the image of a fire-breathing serpent. These are just the biblical images. Friends, according to Old Testament scholars, of Israel's neighbors, Leviathan is common. A common image for the evil and chaos. When it, That's what they would have been thinking about. And, and the last point I'll make is that I think it just fits the context so much better. To, to imagine God to Job's deep anguish questions about what him by just describing just doesn't seem to fit the moment. It makes much what had happened to Job real real harm and pain into your life. And Job's Job powerful is To stop it, can you call him out by your own strength? No. What's the implication? You're in no position, Job, to comment on how I'm governing the world when you can't govern it yourself. It's kind of what Job, what God is getting to when he speaks to Job in verses 10 to 14. We read it earlier. This is of chapter 40. He's saying, go on, put on your own glory and your own splendor. Let your anger pour out against all those who stand against you, against the proud. Bring them low. Go ahead. Bring justice to the wicked. Hide them in the ground so they can do no more. And as soon as you can do that, Acknowledge that you don't need me. What he's doing is confirming for Job that Job is, in one sense, forces of evil and death that he can't control or stand against on his own. But what, what he's not saying to Job is, so cut me some slack. You couldn't do a better job. I would to keep these forces in check. My hands are tied, though. Evil is strong. It's not easy to overcome it. I'm... That's not the image. It's clear what, what God is saying to Job is that of Behemoth, I'm in as much control over him as I am of you. Of Leviathan, you can't draw him out with a hook. Thing that he's doing. Just like in the earlier speeches, the answer to these rhetorical questions is that Job is not about, but that God is able to do all that he's asking about. He has a power that Job doesn't have. 
to bring evil to heal. That's the point of the speech. That God doesn't have to bring evil to heal. So why does Job need to hear this? How does this help Job and us? That's where I want to leave you with two hopeful implications. Two hopeful implications. Here's the first one. When we're tempted to blame God, we ought to trust God. When we're tempted to blame God, we ought to trust God. If, if God is big enough for us to blame Him for not putting an end to our pain and our sorrow, to the power of evil and injustice, if He's big enough to blame for not putting a stop to those things, He's also big enough to do something about it. He's also big enough to be using evil, even evil, for His own purposes. Last week, the speech that we looked at, the emphasis was on knowledge. If God... He's also big enough to have reasons for what He's doing that you can't see. So don't judge Him. Don't stand and judge Him. See everything that He does. You need to recognize that you know normal in your life. Your life is full of examples where you can't see the whys and the wherefores. So don't stand in judgment over God as if He can't have reasons you don't see. That was the point of last week, the point of focusing on knowledge. Here, though, here the point is that a God who's big enough to blame is big enough to have power to bring good out of evil. And you can taste the effects of evil in your life. You can blame Him for that if you want. But it's much better to trust that He's up to something wonderful. That things are not what they seem to you. That He is on the way towards something glorious. That everything that happens to you, even the painful things that happen to you, nothing can thwart or challenge now. You could choose to blame him, or you could realize the same things in your mind that just about this, all that he can bring good out of it. That's, I think. I'm going to park here for just a second. I'm going to chew on this for a minute. A while back, I was fishing with my, my two young sons. And uh, I had hooked a bass, but I hooked it right up next to the dock. Son, have a chance to reel him in. I knew I'd hook, I was pretty sure I'd hooked him good. It was a good clean hook right through the jaw. This, this fish was going nowhere. He didn't know it, but he was going nowhere. So the, uh, the line, I just pressed the button that releases the line and let him run with it. For a few minutes even. Just let him go. Let him plenty of line play out. Now, if, if my son didn't, was old enough to recognize what I was doing, he would have been angry with me. The away from the dock seems like I'm letting the fit. He didn't know that I was in complete control of the situation. That I wanted was to give him a chance to reel it in. I wanted him to have the fun. Fish. Essentially, this is what God is telling Job about evil. 
Job can't hook Leviathan with a hook straight through the jaw and draw him out. Job doesn't have that power. But God... And he swims only as far as God is willing to let him go. And God... For some reason, for his purposes unseen by us, God allows evil to continue. He allows evil even to cause pain in those that he loves. But the same power that could have stopped it is the same power that's going to bring good out of it. Job needed to know it. In hindsight, friends, this is what we can see is happening in Job. What We know something Job isn't even told. Life right now is playing out as an example of the work. If you were to lose everything else that God, Job doesn't know what God, Satan, came to God with a chance. Everything that Job loves, Job, the only reason Job is still with you in his life is that he's getting. Strip away what he loves. His stuff. Strip all that away and, and he'll curse you. That's what Satan had said. If of Job, even at the cost of Job's comfort, at the cost of things that Job loved, what do we know has happened? What we know is that for thousands of times have read Job and been comforted by Sounded through the ages as a testimony to the in the lives of those who look know that in his taking himself up that been forever studied by the lost everything that he had had won himself to be a fool. One of my favorite story writers, a woman named Flannery O'Connor, often wrote characters based on the devil. And she said that she loved to write characters based on the devil to be funny. She liked comedy. That the devil was a great subject for the kind of comedy she liked to write. Because... This is a quote from one of her letters. He's always accomplishing ends other than his own. In the problem foot. In the problem crushed by the things he means to crush other people. And this is exactly what he's done in Jesus. When Peter first Christian sermon to those who had gathered for the feast in Jerusalem. Well, this thing. He, wrote, he preached to those who were there of Jesus, of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. Delivered up to death. Brutal. Death. According knowledge of God. 
This Jesus you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God the pangs of death because it was Peter said powers of evil I think they all along foreordained redeem those just to death the same idea in Hebrews chapter 2 describing Jesus the writer says that he himself, Jesus, partook of the same things of flesh and blood, of human flesh, human blood. He became like us. So, destroy the one who has the power. Jesus put the devil couldn't resist. He hooked something. He could on death. Imaginable pain, sorrow, looked pointless, futile. Jesus has sort of death. And shooting himself in the foot, that's the point. You can trust God far with that line before he reels him in once and for all. For blame him for not doing something about it. We can make all things turn to our good. But nobody ever got over the problem of evil by intellectual checkmate, did they? The problem it is an emotional problem that we deal with. When you're in the thick of, of the emotional battle with evil, when you are experiencing the loss and the pain that you can't explain, that you wish weren't true in your life, when that... Proving that the problem of evil isn't unsolvable, but a savior. You don't over the things that threaten you. You don't need somebody to tell you that you can't bring good out of evil. You know what you need is some way to push through the mystery, to endure in the not knowing what. And when we focus on Jesus and what He is for us, we're enabled to trust God. When we're tempted to blame Him, we... It makes Him blameworthy, makes Him trustable. That's an ought. What we need is the power to do. And I think the best place for any of us to look when we need the resources to push on in the midst of pain and sorrow is to look at Christ and trust God through Him. Job found some hope, if not clarity, in the speech that God gave him. In chapter 42, we get his final response. Job answers the Lord and says, I know that you can do all things, I, that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I get it, Leviathan. I said, you, you asked, knowledge. It was me. I uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Verse 5 sums it up. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear. I thought I knew what you were like. But now, now my eye sees you. 
What had Job seen? He didn't see the purpose behind the evil that he'd experienced in his life. He didn't see anything about that. He didn't get the veil pulled back to see the throne room scene where Satan and God are wrangling over Job's life. He didn't see thousands upon thousands encouraged by it in years to come. He didn't see any of that. His situation still doesn't make sense. What did he see? Well, he'd seen something of God. God had spoken to him. That was a gift. He'd seen a power. He'd seen his own littleness in the face of that power. He'd seen that he's nobody's judge. That's what his eyes had seen. And at that time, it was what he needed. It was enough for him. But he'd seen nothing yet. In the hindsight of Christ, Job had seen nothing yet. God showed But the author of the Gospel of John tells us that what Job had seen only in glimpse had now come fully, had put on flesh. That the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, the God who spoke to Job. That grace and truth, that's what He... That's what he has shown to us. John tells us of this word, of his glory. Friends. And share in their pain. John saw him suffer a death that he didn't deserve to die. Over the death of his friend and give his friend new life. in the life. John saw him endure great evil on purpose to bring from it beauty and love. Focusing on Jesus doesn't take the pain away. But it does show us a promise that a God who would enter into my pain a God who would live and die. That that God is worth trusting to bring good out of my pain. That's a God with whom I can endure a mystery I may never fully understand. Father, none of us are up to the challenge of enduring unless you show yourself to us like you showed yourself to Job and even more so. So we thank you for Jesus and we pray and to see ourselves through him. Your word to us is good and clear and full of hope. We want the power to live our lives as if it's true. So help us with that in Jesus' name. Amen.